night Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win goals But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go Talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO And we're back once again Mike, Mike and Oscar doing another Tarantino rewatch series entry for you today We're finishing off the Kill Bill series We're covering Kill Bill Volume 2 I am your co-host Mike 1 This is co-host Also Mike Also Mike here And of course what comes after a martial arts film a spaghetti western. <laughs> yes, natural, natural progression if ever there were one. Tarantino truly flexing his muscles and, mm. and giving the audience something new and different as he's been known to do throughout this series up to this point. So why stop now? This is what we're doing. Kill Bill Volume 2. If you missed Volume 1, we covered that as well as all of Tarantino's canonical, directorial, and written films. That's easy to say mm-hmm. and a way to describe these things. Uh, up to this point, as we are for every Tarantino film, that's what we're doing in this rewatch series that we're doing right now for Quentin Tarantino leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you've not joined us yet for a Tarantino episode, what these are are basically two reviews for the price of one. We are reviewing each and every written and directed Tarantino film up to and through Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We have a non-spoiler review. That's the first half of every Tarantino episode. And we have a spoiler warning, which is a local theater group that's really on the rise and hot in the streets, performs a scene from one of these movies, or at least an interpretation. That's the spoiler warning. Following that will be the spoiler section for each one of these. Michael, what differentiates these Tarantino Tarantino episodes from any kind of Pixar or OSP episodes we do. Yeah, in the specs, you talk about a year in review, so we get a context to the Oscar lens that we'll talk about throughout the non-spoiler section. We give our personal watch stories where we saw these for the first time. We talk about the soundtrack in a way. Basically, we decide what makes Quentin Quentin dance. There wasn't a lot in this one. He's a dancing fool often. I I have a decision, but I think... okay. uh, I, I definitely think you're right. There's not as many uh, bangers yeah. as the last movie. We have all his homages, and there's a great Huffington Post article I'm going to reference that really lists all of those. We're going to perform a scene. You gave us way too much credit when you said it's an interpretation. I think it's a <laughs> bastardization, perhaps. Uh, and then we discuss our best scenes through the segment of Trademark Tarantino. We give three kinds of best scenes. Basically, the underrated, the innovative, and of course, the classic. We got screenwriting advice from Tarantino. I found a few really interesting nuggets there that confirmed some of the best and worst things about Mr. Tarantino. Oh, good. Good and bad. (laughs) Good and bad. Which is what we do throughout these reviews. And then, of course, the final segment, we're going to talk Easter eggs hidden in this movie to other Tarantino films. That gets us talking about the Tarantino-verse. And I think we're going to end today's discussion, Mike, with a uh, chat about Kill Bill 3, some speculation. We're going to have fun with that. Still convinced that's going to come out at some point in 2019. But yes, that's all going to be what you have to look forward to here. The way we start these episodes is Mike is going to run down the cast and crew for Kill Bill Volume 2. So, of course, the U and Q and U is Uma Thurman. She returns as the bride here. We learn her name in this movie, which is fun. No longer a bleeping sound, yes. A bleeping sound for the beginning. Yeah. And we, yeah, we got the name. Written and directed by Tarantino, and the story credit uh, goes to Uma Thurman and Tarantino. Michael Madsen from Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Blonde there, he returns as Bud, Bill's assassin brother. Mm-hmm. We have Daryl Hannah returning as Ellie driver she is from blade runner and splash 
Mike Quinton was seeing a play of hers and was laughing like a buffoon in the front row, says Hannah. Okay. Uh, during an interview I found on YouTube. And Hannah's like, I noticed him during the performance. Jesus. He's in the front row. A little off-putting. <laughs> he comes backstage after the show and tells her, look, I'm writing you a part. You're going to be in Kill Bill. So she's like, wait, I'm, I'm Bill? You know, you're the nemesis, he said. I'm Bill? And, uh, of course, later on, she got a script that she said was the size of a phone book and just loved it. Thank God he's as prolific as he is. Because can you imagine him being, I hate to disparage the name, but Tommy Wiseau walking up to these famous people being like, I'm writing you a part. <laughs> no, thank you, Tommy. Orson Welles, that late age Orson Welles. Exactly, yeah. I mean, right now, everyone, and and still to this day, obviously, wants to do work with Tarantino. Yeah, luckily. Luckily for him. (laughs) Otherwise, he'd be one of those close talkers that you try to push away. (laughs) Tarantino talked about why he wanted David Carradine to play Bill. Number one, he's a big fan of Kung Fu, the TV series. He thought David Carradine was the coolest TV star of Tarantino's childhood. He talked with with Conan O'Brien about this. He talked with New York Times about this. Again, it, I, we scoured YouTube, yeah. as we normally do. Carradine was also chosen, forget this, sex appeal. Essentially, <laughs> he needed a silver fox. And this is, this is me paraphrasing, but Quentin was like, I can't just cast... An older, fatter Burt Reynolds. That Tarantino didn't say older and fatter. Those are my words. Right. Kidding. You couldn't just some slimy old guy. Couldn't just put one of those guys in there because what what you can't have is when they finally kiss in one scene or whatever. You can't have the old audience going ew. Well, that's interesting considering the original choice reportedly, like a lot of rumors and history would would suggest, was he wanted Warren Beatty for this. He did want Warren Beatty. That would have worked because Warren was a silver fox. You think is. that would have worked? Yeah, War- Warren's was All in right. shape in nineteen or two thousand and three. All right, maybe you have more faith in the older leading men than well, I, know, I guess. I'm obviously attracted to Warren Beatty, and you're not. <laughs> to each their own. No, but I, I heard Jack Nicholson was also in consideration, but that was probably like that was about Schmidt. Jack Nicholson. Can you imagine him being? Never mind being kissing Uma Thurman, but just being a kung fu master and having a sword <laughs> fight. You see, I'm gonna go. Ah, uh, yeah, ah, uh, yeah. Play my flute. That's so dumb. So, Mike Carradine's hot. Anyway, uh, Tarantino says summation. Lu Ping wanted him to play Pai Mei. Now, he had rehearsed it all and was ready. He was egregious. ready to do all of the action scenes, Tarantino was. He, at least that's what he said. Midway through production, when Pai Mei's coming into his arc, mm-hmm. he basically decided at the 11th hour that he was going to go with Gordon Liu, uh, something that he was thinking about, and you have a little nugget on this. So Tarantino's got an ego, a healthy ego, and he inserts himself into his own films is there any doubt he would have been donning the Fu Manchu mustache and the fake beard and the hair if he played Pai Mei here, first of all? It would have been the most racist fucking shit with, ever. With how big a deal cultural appropriation uh. is today. We already talk about how certain dialogue he uses loses points for his films with us watching them, rewatching them now in 2019. Yes. Could you fathom him in that getup as Pai Mei? It would have been so dumb. <laughs> now... He was thinking about another option. Yeah, he was. And and that is very true. He was going to cast himself as Pai Mei. He gave it to Gordon Liu. But I also read from a source that he was ready to do a voiceover 
So he would just be the voice of Pai Mei as an homage to the bad dubbing from the Kung Fu movies in the 60s and 70s. He was going to provide the voice, and instead of having subtitles for when Pai Mei spoke, it was going to be Quentin Tarantino's voice dubbed over Gordon Liu's actually delivering of the lines. I think they avoided catastrophe on a couple fronts with this character. Absolute catastrophe. <laughs> and he would not have been able to resist an accent. Of course not! <laughs> he is he is hard to listen to on 1990s yeah. and 2000 talk shows. Yep. Just for that reason alone. So never mind, put him in his movie. Ugh. Yeah. Why is he always doing an accent? He's like freaking D from It's Always Sunny. <laughs> he is that level of, I have to do an accent with every character. What is wrong with uh, him? Oh, with great success comes great ego. Oh, my God. So anyway, Gordon Liu was the hero who faced off against Pai Mei in several older martial arts films. Yeah. I'll list them later in homages. And uh, it was fitting that Gordon Liu actually play mm-hmm. the Kung Fu master archetypal villain in this film. You have Samuel Jackson. He is Rufus. You have the Devil's Reject Sid Haig. He is Jay. You have Sin City's Clark Middleton as, as Bud's friend uh, Ernie. Way too many Ds in this. Anyway. <laughs> Perla Haney Jardine is BB. Helen Kim is Karen. And from Tusk and Red State, Michael Parks, most notorious movies mm-hmm. in recent years, Parks was asked to read the role of Esteban Vallejo for the table read that Tarantino put on, where a very well known Latino actor was a no-show. Yeah, he just didn't, and Ricardo Matsuban was supposed to have the role originally, just didn't show up to the table just read, is what I read. show up. And so, as a stand-in, Tarantino said, Parks was there, can you just read this? And he was so blown away by how Parks read it, he said, the role's yours. It's his. So, those, yeah, those are my uh, cast and crew notes, Mike. You got specs. Okay. Strap in, folks. If you listen to our Volume 1 review, you know where this is headed, but let's get there first and set the stage. Kill Bill Volume 2, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, with the bride character based on Q and U. We went over all of that in the first episode or Volume 1, I should say. The film debuted April 8th, 2004 in the Cinerama Dome, which I still say is a great name for either a big cinema or a globe where you battle to the death in Hollywood. It <laughs> went wide a week later on April 16th. It's a 136-minute runtime on an R rating and technically a $30 million budget as Volumes 1 and 2 were shot together and cost $60 million to produce. They were put in the can at the same time. If you go back and listen to our Volume 1 talks of the origin story, we have some questions that leads to some homework we ask of you, dear listener, and we basically reveal how this film came to be and the financial success it turned into and, again, how they were shot at the same time and divided up afterwards. Now, would you have made this into one movie? No. I th- I totally agree. Like, I heard a lot. The total of, change alone. I, I, t- I heard a lot of interviews start off with the fact that, Quinn, why didn't you just make one three-hour movie instead of two two hours and 15-minute movies? You could have made this one movie. Wouldn't that have played better? No. I totally yeah. agree. Like, one's a spaghetti western, right. the other one's a martial the, arts film. I mean, you can go down that road. You could go down, we talked about how we were remote. The, the two things that he cited as being things he would definitely have taken out if this was all one movie, we wouldn't have had the manga cartoon break that mm-hmm. gives Oren Ishii's background in volume one. We wouldn't have had the Esteban Viejo story that was a great side quest that played a big role in the finale here definitely. in part two. Those were two things he's on the record as citing that would have been chopped off. So absolutely not. Whether you go by... The tonal shift would have just been lunacy Mm. if it was all one movie, or you go by what would have been lost in the interim. I'm glad this was two parts. Uh, Okay. All that boring stuff is out of the way. Let's talk about Tarantino, Uma Thurman, and the Me Too movement. 
Without going deep into specifics about what the Me Too movement is, it was a female empowerment movement in which victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment from men in positions of power relative to themselves spoke out and told their truths regarding those events. Now, such events, unfortunately, were not all that rare, especially in Hollywood, an industry long run at the highest levels by middle-aged to elderly white men. Stop me if you've heard this before. Plenty of these men were well known in the industry for getting away with such heinous acts via the power dynamic they held in contrast to the victims and their high-priced army of lawyers, as well as general, well, what are you going to do attitude that had taken the very serious insinuations and assumptions of sex assault over the years from true criminal allegation to stand-up set and sitcom punchlines. We're all kind of to blame there. So this week we still have things that we were talking about with Max Landis. Mm -hmm. We got Kevin Spacey front and center of all the trades. It's still happening and it's still being dealt with and we're still reckoning with the good of this movement but also this movement surfaced a lot of the scum and a lot of the grossness of it all so we're reckoning with you know truths that we haven't had to face before and we're dealing with actual we're taking every allegation seriously which is not something historically that has been done and a lot of it is to thank and put on the shoulders of the me too movement but what made the me too movement different and impactful for that matter was the support of social media victims were able to speak their truths in an open public forum and the support and backing of hundreds of thousands of others clamoring and calling for justice on their behalves made it impossible for those calls to go unanswered any longer there have been great things done as a result of the Me Too movement, what with Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein both facing long-standing legal battles as a result of their very real, very confirmed, disgusting actions towards women and others. There have also been cases in which victims have spoken out against attackers and the complaints turned out to not be verified after an investigation. Though admittedly, the former scenario has far, far outweighed the latter with regards to this movement, speaking about those in power in Hollywood. Right. And it was actually Weinstein's involvement in the Me Too movement, which turned the production of Kill Bill, primarily of Volume 2, into a persecution of Quentin Tarantino in the public forum some 14 years after the film was released in theaters. Miramax was the longtime distributor of Tarantino films. The Weinstein brothers prided themselves on sort of leading the indie film charge of the 90s, and in many ways, Tarantino was their golden boy. It was the success of Quentin Tarantino's films, after all, that aided Miramax in being purchased by Disney for a great sum. And it was also a Tarantino movie we talked about in a different different specs for a different episode, which was the first movie that Miramax would fund wholly. Thus, as such things go, a kinship was formed between studio head and prominent writer-director as Harvey Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino became real-life friends. Now, we have basically Miramax being known at the time as the house that uh, Quentin Tarantino built in many ways. We have Down and Dirty Pictures as a great literary source. If you want a book to to read as an audio book, it's terrific. It gets you inside the uh, business practices, let's say, of Harvey Weinstein. You don't Mm -hmm. really have to go much further than that to realize that he's a scumbag already, just the way he does business. Bit of an inscrutable personality, yeah. But they don't get into what got him locked up today, Michael. Right. Still, it's, it's a hell of a book on the independent film movement and how that came to be. What a cheapskate, what a uh, difficult person to work with. And Tarantino had his battles with Weinstein over the years in many ways. Like, they would just have screaming matches. They would really get in each other's faces. And it was one of those work relationships that somehow prospered. And it was just like, there's too much money to make. Yeah. Not to keep working together but success is a good uh it it does vanquish those types of arguments sometimes for creative freedom 
Tarantino sacrificed a lot, and he sacrificed some integrity throughout this story here. Well, either way, I mean, friends do fight, and Tarantino and Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein specifically, did build that friendship to work together, and it was more than just a working relationship. Uh, this reportedly would not be enough to keep Weinstein, though, from being inappropriate in attempts to use his power to make unwanted sexual advances towards women close to Tarantino, as each of Rose McGowan, friend and co-worker of Tarantino's, Mira Sorvino, ex-girlfriend of Tarantino's, and Uma Thurman, co-worker and reported romantic interest of Tarantino's, all had reportedly filled Tarantino himself in on separate such incidents involving Weinstein. Yeah. Now, for his part, Tarantino reportedly did step in and confront Weinstein on at least two separate occasions, according to Insider.com, but clearly didn't exhaust every option with the studio head, as he'd say in his own words when reflecting back on the incidents during the Me Too movement, quote, I knew enough to do more than I did, end quote. To be clear, Tarantino himself is not accused in any way of being a sexual predator personally. Rather, he received blame for doing what far too many people did when they heard of or were directly told of these alleged sexual assaults in Hollywood over the years by the same offenders, which is to say, he didn't do nearly enough. That would be one cause of strain on the relationship between Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman, but it would not be the lone one, as while filming the scene in this movie, Volume 2, where Thurman drives to the brothel, you'll notice the bride is in a rickety old-looking vehicle. Thurman had severe reservations about driving the vehicle at all, and pleaded with Tarantino to have a stunt person attempt the drive for the shoot. Thurman would eventually relent and personally attempt the drive, but only at the behest and pleading of Tarantino, assuring her everything would be safe and work out. Well, Uma's fears came true, though, as she'd lose control of the vehicle and crash the car, veering off the side of the road, concussing herself and sustaining multiple other injuries. So the big thing here, Mike, was that they reversed the route. Like, Uma was ready to do this. She was ready to talk to the camera, looking in the rearview mirror there, and she was ready to perform the scene, and she basically had it in her head which way the car was going, which way she would have to veer the car. Right. And then they reversed the route. Well, not they. Tarantino changed Tarantino the route. Tarantino reversed the route. Instead of going up, we wound up going down like a hill. In his words, he thought it was a more straight road. It looked like a more straight road than he than it actually turned out being. She's talked about it somehow not being level, so right. that screwed her mm -hmm. up. And she's in this rinky-dink old car. Rinky dink. yeah. And it was a rinky... It really was yeah. like an old museum car. Right. So she wasn't all that familiar with driving it. And Tarantino caught hell for this from her from ethan hawk uh his friend and her husband at the time and tarantino had basically profusely apologized for it during this 2017 something like yeah probably 18 you know, but yeah around fire when the me too movie yeah, came mean, to get him yeah. he did i mean he's like this is the my greatest regret mm -hmm. in my professional career i i he, I don't want to defend him necessarily. Well, no, we're gonna. I mean, the, I, I, I bring that up, and we're gonna. I'll give the audience a chance, like you are, to debate about what they think that means in a minute. But after the crash, Thurman even was quoted as saying that immediately following the accident, she was in such pain and so mangled that she was convinced she had lost the ability to ever walk again. She blamed Tarantino, even going so far as to accuse the director of trying to kill her. Tarantino was said to be furious on the set at being called reckless, but later on, like also Mike just told you, would accept and admit being completely wrong on multiple counts leading up to the crash, even taking full responsibility for Uma having been in the car at all in the first place in an interview with Deadline. Again, this is from 2018. And, you know, Tarantino quoted Ethan Hawke, who called Quentin after this thing. He's like, Quentin, what are you doing? 
She is a great actress. Yeah. She's not a stunt person. What are you doing? And Tarantino quoted that in the interviews and in the articles, saying, like, duh, what am I doing? He definitely put on a Mia Culpa tour. Now, what the motivation for doing so... There's more guilt. Let's keep talking. There's more guilt there than just... Uh, in yeah. fact, Uma Thurman would post the video of the crash to Instagram, but admitting the only reason she was able to get the footage at all was due to Tarantino's diligence in retrieving it from Miramax personally for Uma to have and do with what she'd like again. This is in 2018 for the crash that happened on set back in 2002-2003. And whether you think Tarantino is honest and forthright about his regret both over the Weinstein allegations and the car incident, or whether either or both are cases of a man trying to cover his own ass and only accepting responsibility years after the fact as the Me Too movement was in the midst of holding powerful men in Hollywood accountable for their transgressions, that's for you to decide. What is irrefutable, however, is the backlash Tarantino received from other Hollywood elites and others on social media at the time as these stories came to light simultaneously back in early 2018 as the likes of both Judd Apatow and Jessica Chastain came out criticizing both Tarantino himself and his professional future, with the basis of their complaints essentially claiming that allowing Tarantino to make future films would be the same laissez-faire attitude that enabled all the abuse cited by the Me Too movement to be covered up as it historically was in the first place. Tarantino's films have never been immune to controversy, so it probably shouldn't be a surprise that the auteur behind them isn't either. But the line of what is and isn't acceptable, even for art, has certainly moved to the more conservative side as a result of movements such as Me Too in the last few years. Tarantino was the one who spit on Thurman's face for this film, instead of Michael Madsen as the film suggests, and Tarantino was also the person who strangled Uma with the chain during the bride's fight with Gogo in Chapter 1. He claims he did so for the sake of brevity, as his personally having done these actions would give him as the director exactly what he was, look he was going for on film, there obviously was no outrage over such actions at the time they happened, yet they were the examples cited by Chastain in her tweets damning Quentin as she made a wider point about the movie industry at large saying that abusing female actors isn't and shouldn't be necessary to empower female characters. So here are the questions that all of this brings to light. Is she right? Was she always right? Is it excusable when such actions are done with the actress's consent? Is it sometimes necessary to empower a certain female character to tell a certain story? Is it okay if such actions are strictly done for entertainment or art? Should it be completely taboo after so many victims of physical and sexual abuse have felt empowered enough by the Me Too movement to come forward to tell their stories? Is it something we need to take on a case-by-case -case basis? Does it skew either side of the argument with regards to these incidents, specifically referring to Tarantino with the fact that he's someone who once defended an abuser, such as Roman Polanski in an interview, in an interview and then again walked back those comments years after the fact as the public was crying out for him? If you listen to this podcast long enough, Mike, Mike, and Oscar, you're going to realize where we Mikes fall on these questions. But regardless of where we, you, or anyone does, I personally think that the fact that we're all asking these questions thinking them through, and giving them and ancillary issues the serious consideration they demand instead of just doing something first and worrying about it later can only be considered a good thing in the long term. And in a very direct way, we have the Me Too movement and the brave men and women who have stepped up in both telling their stories and supporting and seeking justice for those who do to thank for that. All right, so I'm not going to weigh in on, on all of what you said. It's a hell of an expose. We end with a lot of questions, as a lot of good movies do, right. and I think those are worthy questions. Like I said, I don't believe myself uh, able to answer all of them, never mind willing. Right. At this juncture, we're, we're still at the beginning of the podcast, the movie review here. So bottom line is, for me, 
at the very least, the Weinstein Company, or as it was then, uh, Miramax, should have been liable for Uma Thurman's injuries in that crash. They should have provided her with the video right then and there because Quentin Tarantino had essentially screwed up. I mean, that's malpractice Mm -hmm. by Tarantino. You don't allow a non-stunt person to perform a stunt, whether they agree to it or not. You don't persuade her to perform that stunt. It's recklessness. It's reckless. Uh, it's, it's It's probably wanton reckless. And I think Tarantino, years later, has finally recognized as much. And to the point where he secured her that tape, which was an odyssey for her to get. It was like a 15-year odyssey that caused a lot of strain in her friendship with Tarantino. That caused a lot of grief for her personally. To the point where she would never really work for that group again. Yeah. So it's a lose-lose situation for the Weinsteins as well. So for them to be that cheap and really essentially... To, to skirt the lawsuit if there was a lawsuit. Now, we don't know how badly hurt she was. She said she was concussed. She yep. said, she, I mean, she, it sounds like she got really banged up by yeah. a car crash. Yeah. And her I mean, medical you know, bills, you know, she, we she don't was, know, but she was friends with Tarantino at the time. And if the report was she came out of there accusing him of trying to kill her, then yeah. She, she was, was pissed. Yeah, she she probably had a right to be pissed. Furious. Yeah. She's probably slightly embarrassed that it, that it happened. Sure. That she, that she, she I should have trusted my gut, one of those things. Yeah. yeah. And then Tarantino was probably upset that it happened you know like a father who like anybody if you, if you got in a car crash i would yell at you for driving recklessly I and i would be wrong and i would be wrong to do so right. if a father's son gets sick and he gets mad at the son's for getting sick for going out in the rain obviously they're two different relationships but these are two friends she got hurt doing something that he wanted her to do and he should have been liable miramax should have been liable that's all i can tell right now to be honest i know we have Questions about Tarantino. Is he a man that's evolved over the years, morally? Has ethically? he truly evolved, or is he just worried about his career and covering his ass? The All these apologies. Now, I think... They're some, the right move. I think some of them came out beforehand, before this Me Too movement. Like, he was upset by the whole thing. He did get her the tape before this whole thing came out, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true, to be honest. I'm pretty sure it okay. is. Because the, 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 the New York Times article came out, she had to tape. So before the New York Times article came out, he had gotten her the tape. Okay. So it wasn't like he got her the tape after a first New York Times article out came out. Because the whole big thing was she she was basically, after Weinstein got nabbed, she said, more, I have more on this later. Or okay. in a tweet or in an Instagram post. She's like, I'm not going to comment now. I have a lot to say later. And she was basically waiting for the New York Times article to drop. Okay. Uh, so Tarantino did secure her the tape. Again, is that forgivable? For a guy who stood by knowing what a scumbag Weinstein was and only confronted him a few times to apologize, essentially, and to these to, women. Yeah, and admits himself he knows he did, could have done more, should have done more, however you want to phrase it. Yeah. In 2002, 2001, what he said on Howard Stern about Roman Polanski not understanding statutory rape. What Ridiculous. the fuck? Absolutely inexcusable. That, like, that, to me, that's, inexcusable. that's the thing that's like, who were you back then yeah. that you don't understand that statutory rape is rape? Look, because you're hitting on, and I, I mean, yeah, look, we do all grow, right? Like, this is why it's so tough to, to parse through, because we do all grow, we do all mature, we do, our perspective on things do change, that comes with life. Usually, yeah. that perspective changing doesn't come to the forefront when we're all, un, just when we're all under fire for something. You know, and like you said, yes, there's some instances proving that he changed beforehand, so maybe this is all genuine, and it's all just as one big coincidence that it happened to coincide with the Me Too movement when they were calling for him. 
Maybe it's half and half. I, I I don't know. I don't know how we're ever going to get an answer to that. But he was caught in a firestorm, and then he did the bulk of his apolo- public apologies. That's how that it would much. seem. Yes, that That's, that is a true. Now again, aspect. we're not we are not Uma Thurman. We are not Ethan Hawke. We don't know what went on behind the scenes between those two parties prior to all this. And there is the sense, at least if you read the articles, that Uma and, and Quentin Tarantino aren't friends, but there's an understanding between them. They're 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 amenable towards each other. But Let's at, say. you know, where do you put Quentin Tarantino? Is he a Joe Paterno figure? Yeah, I, it, is he a is he a figure that just part of the machine that allowed these people to abuse their power? Is he? I, I mean, of course he's not. Of course we can say that he's not equatable to the rapists, no, and the, and the assholes, not at all, and the monsters that 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 abuse that power. Right. However. He's definitely, to a degree, an accessory. He has some level of culpability within him not having done enough when he knew what he Accessory knew. is a strong word. I don't know. Not accessory. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I, accessory I don't know what sounds I'd right. Call it, but exactly. I mean, but I think what you're the, the difficulty we're having in discussing this is 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 the difficulties I wanted to raise by reviewing this overall because yeah. I don't think there's any kind of answer that's going to be direct, automatic, and yes. When it comes to people like Tarantino, when it comes to people like Weinstein. Yes, there are answers that are direct, automatic, and, and it's easy yeah, lock to parse them the fuck up. Exactly. When it comes to these types of situations, it's I don't know how to do it. Yes, he was wrong. He says he was wrong, for fuck's sake, you right. know? So I don't know how far we can go because we just don't know all the facts. And it's different than saying, well, we don't know the facts, all the facts about Kevin Spacey or Harvey Weinstein. Well, no, but at the same time, we kind of do. You know what I mean? And it's kind of been confirmed on a lot of levels. This is a very specific instance where there's only been so many outlets reporting on it, and there hasn't been a lot of direct conversation about the incident from Quentin, from right. Uma, from anyone else involved. But the crimes are totally different, though. Of course, that, that's, that's 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 I'm not. Yeah, I'm, yeah I, that, I think that's there's where I'm there needs so... to be there needs to be a, a clear delineation in people's minds between the bad stuff that Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey have been alleged of doing and have really been confirmed of doing on a lot of levels, yeah. and what Quentin Tarantino's shortcomings in this instance were. So it's tough to transition now into our movie review. We have a fun movie to review. Yes. We have some serious scenes to dissect and where this will come in again, this whole scenario, because we're going to talk about the spit scene. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the uh, the chain scene later on from the first movie. But great job, Mike. Uh, that was a riveting listen. I, I could never summarize it in that way because this, this is a sprawling story. I hated myself writing that. I got so frustrated like 18 times yeah. at its... Yeah. And just, I, I can't... I, it's so tough to just even talk about and prepare a speech for. And I again, the only thing I ever say is God bless these victims and God bless the people that find strength and, and, and hopefully there's some kind of peace that comes at the end of all of this for everyone that needs it. And Uma's... Let's, let's be honest. Uma in that New York Times article alleges people for sexually abusing her. Yeah. And it's not just this scenario where she was attacked and I mean, she has some serious accusations well, in that got, article that have nothing to do with Tarantino and she has dealt with some shit. She blames herself too in that in the Business Insider article I read or the one of the Insider articles, maybe it was Deadline as well, but there, there's she blames herself for enabling Weinstein's monstrosity to go on because she felt that by standing by this picture... It made it okay for other actresses to go in a room alone with Harvey Weinstein by accepting his apology that Quentin kind of forced Weinstein to give him give Uma a half-assed Before apology. Kill Bill. Yeah, the, Uma blames herself for saying that she made it okay in her own right. So there's just a billion levels. It, like, how can you blame yourself for that? My God, the stress she must be under anyway. But 
it sucks. I mean, we just keep saying this. It sucks. We have to bring it up because it is inextricably a part of the pre-production of this movie. That's where it lays, and we do bring up these questions because we don't know as much as nobody else can know right now, and we just hope that we get clear, and uh, hopefully clarity comes with time. This is a tale of female empowerment. Yes. This is a fun movie to review. We don't have Harvey Weinstein writing or directing this movie. Nope. It's not It's not a case where we're reviewing a Polanski nope. picture here, and for good reason we have not reviewed a Polanski yep. film or a Kevin Spacey film and how long, Mike, basically since it happened. Yep. So... Uh, th- that's deliberate. So let's get into the plot premise. Now. All right. We have the bride continues her quest of vengeance against her former boss and lover, Bill, the reclusive bouncer, Bud, and the treacherous one-eyed Ellie. Mike, what's your first watch story on Kill Bill? I Two. still hold a grudge against a kid I went to school, high school with. His name's Mike. Um, it's not you, and it's not me. <laughs> that's why he's not the other Mike, and it's Mike, Mike, and Oscar <laughs> yes, Enterprise we have why. here today. We, uh, we had made plans to go after school to see this movie, because I remember during study hall, yeah. we were talking about how much we both loved Kill Bill 1. Kill Bill 2 was having to, to have its debut, or just came out yesterday. Something to that effect. And we were like, hey, let's meet up at the movies. Let's go see this tonight. Uh, he no-showed. So it was my first experience actually in a movie theater. I must have been 17 at the time, maybe 18. Uh, my first experience in a movie theater watching a movie by myself, something which I have mastered now in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I was like, what's the big deal of that? But it was my first time doing so, and I, was, I, I wasn't even that mad because I enjoyed the, the – I was like, oh, this is – Fine, I got my popcorn, I got a Quentin Tarantino movie. Is this why you make me sit on the other side of the theater <laughs> Yes. to this day when we go together? Exactly, I, uh, put me in a groove. But that's my watching story. That was the first, I watched this in theaters the day or t- a day after it came out, So, uh, but I watched it alone. So shamefully, I don't remember where I saw Kill Bill Volume 2. I just remember the morning of, before I watched Kill Bill Volume 2, I watched the DVD of Kill Bill Volume 1. Okay. Now, was you I in the dorm room? Ready. Was I home for spring break? Because mm-hmm. it was April 12th mm-hmm. uh, of 2004. Something it like might that, have yeah. been spring breakish. Was I just home for the weekend? Because I did that occasionally. I don't remember. I, I don't... That's the, funny. You remember where you were for Volume 1, and, and I don't. And I remember where I was for Volume 2, and you don't the first time watching it. Isn't that weird? Yeah. And I can't jog my memory and figure it out, but I, I remember doing them both together. The question I have for you out of that is, do you want to see the quote, Whole Bloody Affair, which is a... Which is a DVD, Blu-ray that I could not find. I really wanted to to watch it. Watch both these movies back to back. Apparently, there's an, a longer manga series. Oh, really? There's a longer, uh, you know, anime Oren Ishii exposition in that I, I, and now, some deleted scenes. Having seen them already and knowing what they are, and not having to just digest two separate genres of film playing as one film. I think doing it for the first time would be incredibly difficult. But yeah, sure. Now I would watch them back to back. With an intermission, you think? You'd like, you'd like I wouldn't. Yeah. Well, otherwise you're you're glued to your chair for what four <laughs> hours, four and a half hours. Yeah. So I think that's out there. If anybody knows how to get a hold of that, let me know because I couldn't find it on on uh, Amazon. Oh, okay. That's really all I looked. I didn't look at it. <laughs> all right, anything, fair enough. There it is. All right, let's jump into the production values quick here. Cinematography, I like the first movie cinematography a little better. There's much less movement in this one because this is at a western pace, Mike. He'll ratchet it up at times for the fight scenes to a degree, but we are basically looking at these vast settings out there in the wilderness Mm -hmm. of China, etc. And we are 
looking at these sparse settings, and it's just got that old school Western feel to it. Yeah, it definitely does. There's no mistaking that this is a Western thriller. You can't move the camera it. fast yeah. in that regard. You can that move said, the camera there, fast in, you know, the city of Beijing. There are some cool camera tricks he plays. One specifically that comes to mind is when okay. we are in the chapel itself and we're practicing and. And we've had our conversations with our protagonist and our antagonist there. And then the camera zooms out from the chapel to the backside of, of Bill, outside the chapel, keeps pulling out. I like we that. see the back of the, the, the four people that are there. And then instead of following them, the camera just keeps going up. We see the, it's like this crane shot viewing the chapel down, a down angle. And he just lets the, the scene play out from there. That's, again, it's kind of classic Tarantino because he's relying on a master shot in a way. It just takes him some camera tricks to get to that establishment mm-hmm. shot. Stuff like that he did. I appreciated this movie. Uh, in terms of the VFX we were and the stunt work, we already yeah. have damned that. But yeah, we sure. do have practical effects. It's not as showcased as it was in the first movie no. for good reason yeah. we'll get into. But I thought it was, it was strong uh, if you didn't know about the entire botching of the Uma Thurman drives a car. You think Gordon Liu actually stands on a sword? What does he stand on? <laughs> I don't know. He stands on something. So he's got he's got a you know a harness on his yeah, back there. Maybe. I don't know. Or that's a really awesome sword. <laughs> it really is an Atori Hanzo sword. Production design was kind of disappointing in this movie, uh, to be honest. Uh, Bud is living in a trailer in the desert. It's a western, man. I guess. Of course he's in the desert. What do you right. want? You know, like you gotta. It's a modern take on a classic western. He's got. We got that grimy strip club. We got, which is not a big part of the movie, but we got that early on. We got. What are the other settings? We got. Well, we have, we have Pai Mei's tutelage. I mean, there's a little hut yeah. there that she eats in and sleeps in, and then there's the open field that she does her practice. After in. the last movie and the sets that we had, yeah. This is n- no comparison to as built up. No, it, it, it's certainly not, but. To me, it's not. I mean, they're two it's different about, movies. It's about existing in nature, right? More than it's, it's, it's about too it. complete. This is this is the idea is open and flowy and desolate because that chapel needs to be on a desolate right. road surrounded by nothing. Bud need for these people to get away with what they do. Bud needs to be near no humanization, right? So well, yeah. Whereas the last movie, you have to have the ideal acoustics for the five, six, seven, eights. Right. <laughs> you have to function as a restaurant, and you also have to be the setting of a one versus a hundred fight. Right. So, right. All right. I, I I agree with you. The concept Costume design is terrific once again, and I, I'm really happy with it. The makeup and hairstyling, though, I have some quibbles. Bud's hairdo is just immaculate. A mullet Amazing. that scares me. The greatest thing you've seen in TV yet. It scares me. It almost <laughs> looks like it is just like a like a hat. It's kind of. Is that real? Billy Ray Cyrusy? Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, it has to be real. You can't. <laughs> no wig maker is gonna make that. <laughs> I don't know what that was. That <laughs> no, you're right. Out. That looks, I mean, that's a mullet for the ages. And apparently, like, so Uma has certain uh, has the longer hair in the first mm-hmm. movie. And she has that throughout the first movie. So the second movie, she got this haircut. I'm not a huge fan of the haircut. I liked her hair in the first movie. Don't at me, but. I didn't even notice it, to you be didn't honest even with notice you. It? Yeah, sorry. You're the hair guy, though. You, you do. You are very, very, whether it's male, female, or animal, you are in <laughs> on people, on things I also hairs. weigh in on fur. Yeah. <laughs> All right, editing, Mike. I love the quick cuts, the zooms once again. I thought the editing here outshined the editing in one. Really? I, I thought so, yeah. I okay. Thought it was a bigger I, payoff, and I thought he was he was experimenting, whether it was him or Sally Menke, who we talk about, they were experimenting more. 
That's what I. You're going to have to go into that yeah, later for I me because I didn't take notes on the editing or the production values. I was more story oriented, and then I, I I looked at my doc today and I was like, I didn't take any notes on the production <laughs> values. So I'm basically bullshitting for the last ten minutes. Did I do it well? You're doing a fine job. All right, fine. All right, so let's get into the sound now, Mike. Yep. Uh, sound effects. This is a much quieter movie that I thought the sound effects are really. Uh, showcased in like ways. the sound effects i think the sound effects of were just glorious throughout one and two to be honest with you soundtrack for me i felt this was the most glaring difference and it's a it's a major difference we have the music put together by robert rodriguez mm-hmm. in this one you have for free by the way yeah they're buddies so what made quentin dance i'm gonna go through a bunch and yeah. then i'm gonna tell you god so we have good night moon by shivery shivery I'll take your word That's for it. In the, in the credits, did he dance to that? Maybe. Uh, we have three songs by Ennio Morricone. We have A Silhouette of Doom, La Arena, and Il Tramonto. I don't know if he danced any of those. He okay. might have. Can't Hardly Stand It by Charlie Feathers. Yeah, he probably danced to it, but he, did he dance to it the most? No. <laughs> and if Michael Madsen didn't dance to it, I'm not going to count. <laughs> okay. Tumira from Loli Emanuel. We have Summertime Killer from Louis Bakalov. Satisfied Mind from Johnny Cash. About Her from Malcolm McLaren. I hope he did not dance to that one. I hated the use of About Her in this movie because... It was very, like... On the nose. Push or rush or one-word one name for a movie title from the early 2000s-y. But here's what he danced to. Yeah. Because he gave it the longest credit sequence triumph that I've ever seen. <laughs> Victory lap, if you will. Malaguena Salarosa by Chingon. This is Robert Rodriguez's yes. band... This is what Quentin Tarantino danced to the most, if not solely. I think, I think there was an understanding between Quentin and Robert Rodriguez when Ro- Rodriguez agreed to score this film for free. Like, yeah, I'll do it. You're going to play my songs, though. <laughs> my song gets the hammer spot right. for the victory lap. Yeah, that, that, it, that's a great song, though. I remember listening to that throughout the, the last 10 years on my iPod, which became... That's funny. Yeah. I, I really didn't... And I, I usually make a point to hear the sound and score and stuff. I just could not... And that was the only one, though. Like, I would listen to Kill Bill Volume 1 soundtrack, right. and I would listen to this song from Kill Bill Volume Maybe 2. Maybe it's because of that juxtaposition. Like, Volume 1 was so in your face and set the scene in so many memorable moments due to the soundtrack. And this one was kind of just mood setting. You know, yeah, as opposed to right, exactly, which fits. It's just you know, it's not on your playlist unless. I think if you live out there and you like peace and quiet, I don't know, maybe, maybe I don't listen to country music. I don't listen to slow music. I despise country music. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if you're in the city and you need quieter music, but we're in the country and we need upbeat music. I listen to nothing but Blink One Eighty Two. You do. That's true. And Badfinger, apparently. Mike, uh, Badfinger, yes. Uma Thurman was snubbed after her Golden Globe nomination, once again, for Volume 2. She was nominated for a Globe in Volume 1. She was snubbed at the Oscars for Hilary Swank, who won the category for Million Dollar Baby, Annette Benning from Being Julia, Catalina Sandino Morena from Maria Full of Grace, Imelda Staunton from Vera Drake, and Kate Winslet from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Start off our review of performances here. Was she snubbed, or were those five performances better, just slightly better than hers? Well, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen Maria Full of Grace, and it's been a long time since I watched Vera Drake. But she was better in the first one, Uma, wasn't she? She was better in the first one, even though she's got a better scene maybe in this one. Towards, yeah, towards the end. I mean, look, there's one scene I have this written in my notes that there's one look she gives 
that I would have been okay with her being nominated based off this one look. And it's in the finale. It's towards the end. She's got to do 18 different things with not without speaking a word at once. And I'm going to talk about it when we talk about best scenes because it's unbelievable that a human being can pull off these many emotions in one shot. So based on that alone, I would have, wouldn't have had a problem with her being nominated at all. It's an awards-worthy performance yeah. is what I think we're saying. Is it a top 10 in most years? Probably. Right. Probably. Top fair. five in a tough year like this. Yeah. That's a tough year. That is. I do remember four of these five performances. I don't know if I remember all five. I don't know if I ever seen Vera. I am with three of them. Listen, I, the first time I cried in a movie was the Million Dollar Baby, so Hillary Swank should have won. Yeah, That's where I land on that. <laughs> uh, now you have a favorite performance in this movie. I thought David Carradine was out of this world good. He was good. He gets dragged. I can't believe this is a sentence I'm about to speak talking about a Tarantino movie. I feel like he gets dragged down by the dialogue at points. Wow. Especially when he's first on screen. But he is just amazing in this movie to me. Understanding the implications of what he's saying, he's he's playing subtext like crazy. He's got it to play. So in that regard, I'm going to push back on you a little bit because I, that's in the script. Right. I, think, I, I don't disagree with that assessment. I think it's a little cute. His dialogue is definitely a little cute. Oh, it's very cute. It's very, it's very you know, but it, it gets a little... I mean, right, right at first, it's so it's so on the nose to me. The very first time, and I, again, this isn't my worst, but he he's playing this subtle, reserved, solemn, stoic character mm-hmm. until he encounters one thing that goes wrong and it just starts unraveling completely. And that one thing that goes wrong could force him to start drinking heavily. That one thing that goes wrong could be a fight with his mentor that just, he starts swearing and it's losing loose language. So he's kind of... This kung fu master, this head of this very dangerous squad of assassins, but also a complete fraud at the same time. He's got a hair trigger temper, and you don't expect that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting. It. Again, you could put succinctly what it takes me days to say. Well, you talk for a while, and then I can think <laughs> while you're talking. But I really, I really thought he was uh, astounding in this in this performance. I agree. I think he's incredible. I think he's got. He said he's got some of the best scenes of his career. In this movie, and he and he said to Quentin on set, like Quentin's like, I think this is the best scene in the movie for you, and he's like, I think this is the best scene of my career. Oh wow! And that was the opening scene, <laughs> and he was very high on this movie, David Carradine, and I, I we were very high on him. So yeah. in terms of the ensemble, though, I think this cast is is really strong. There's a bit part actor in this movie that Tarantino had recite the same line he did in a previous movie that Tarantino cast him in this movie for. Oh really? We're going to talk about it in right. spoilers Good. and just performances like that. From the back of Samuel Jackson's head, we get a great performance <laughs> yeah. somehow. Somehow. Yeah. I shouldn't say somehow, of course, because it's Samuel Jackson. So anything else on performances before we go into homages here? Uh, no. What do you got for homages? Because I'm interested to hear what Westerns he referenced. So Huffington Post article, Kill Bill, film references. They had 31 things. Some of them are a little loose. Okay. But I'm going to kind of go over my highlights. All right. Ennio Morricone scored a fistful of dollars. This is the Sergio Leone uh, Dollars Trilogy film that Tarantino said he wanted Kill Bill to be his Dollars Trilogy. And he said that on many occasions. So three songs from Ennio Morricone. The music from Navajo Joe and the Profession Gun composed yet again by Ennio Morricone. Yeah, Morricone's uh, music movie. he used both in Volume 1 and Volume 2, so that's pretty on the nose there. That makes sense. I don't know the TV series Ironside. Do you know anything about the, the, the theme Wait, from Wait, was Ironside? that the one where I the cops know. in a wheelchair? No idea. 
I think it is. I think and you're I think thinking NBC, of the A team. I think NBC tried to remake it recently, and I said that mo- that show's gonna fail, and it lasted three episodes. Not because of the cop in a wheelchair. But no, because, because it was a terrible movie uh, show. Right. All right. So here's the guy's name I was searching for before, Larry Bishop. He's the strip club owner, and he uses a line about Bud being as useless as having an asshole right here, pointing to his elbow. Mm -hmm. That was the line that Quentin Tarantino cast, remembered in the 1968 film The Savages, and he had Larry Bishop repeat the same line. Oh, nice. Interesting. I was also right about Ironside, by the way. Carradine plays the flute like he did in 1978's Circle of Iron, the big flute, that is. And, of course, Pime Mike... He is a character that faced off against Gordon Liu in several old martial art films. Again, I have to defer saying which films those are to spoilers because I don't want to give anything away. Non-spoiler script thoughts, though, to finish those up. I have one, and that, well, let's look at that category yeah, this year. go for it. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, written by Charlie Kaufman, Michelle Gondry, and Pierre Bismuth. They won. I Understandable. Think I think that's a worthy winner. Yeah. You had The Aviator by John Logan, the Scorsese film, Hotel Rwanda by Terry George, Keir Pearson, The Incredibles by Brad Bird, and Vera Drake by Mike Lee, who basically went off, joined the circus. <laughs> All the people he performed the circus with came up to this serious drama because they, they do that by improvisation. Now, Mike, those are some good movies. Yeah, that's a tough category, too. Well, kind of an underrated year this was. I'm going to have some issues with this screenplay, and it's it's a surprise for me that I had so many issues with it. Is this screenplay a top five for you on that hmm. year, just based on what? Okay, who does it bump out? Hotel Rwanda is an incredible script. I loved Hotel Rwanda. Loved it. The Incredibles, we pra- just praise for being one of the tightest scripts going. Now, is there a lot of fat in The Aviator? I would argue there is. Yeah, well, yeah, it's certainly not one of Scorsese's. It's still a really good script. Great, it's, it's, it's really good for a movie, absolutely. Vera Drake, I don't know enough about, I don't, I don't remember know. enough about, I should say. I think I did see it now. That's a tough year. That's a really tough year. She was from year. Harry Potter, right? She's a Weasley mom? Ma I'm Weasley? not a Harry Potter person, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tired look, of ask all these you fantasy just series. gave me. Game of, you watch Game of Thrones, right? No. You're not a fantasy guy. Uh, that That is, I don't know that I would put this up there. To be honest with you, I don't know that I would uh, so, that this would bump anything for me. So last week we were screaming that it should have been in like yeah. three or four categories. I don't necessarily know if this is an Oscars. Movie. No, I, I mean, don't know either. Maybe editing, like you're going to say, sure. or, or whatnot. So that's the non-spoiler section. It was a monster this week. Yeah, but, uh, it was. We knew it was coming. Yeah, let's uh, dance. All right. And now for your spoiler warning pleasure. The Mike Mike and Oscar Theatre Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation. Hey, hey, hey. Wiggleworm. Look at this. He holds a can of mace spray by her eyes. She stops. Her eyes go to the nozzle of the spray can, then to Bud. Look here. This is a can of mace. Now you're going underneath the ground tonight, and that's all there is to it. But when I bury you, I was going to bury you with this. He removes a flashlight from behind his back and turns on the beam. But if you're going to act like a horse's ass, I'll spray this whole goddamn can right in your eyeballs. And then you'll be blind burning and buried alive so 
What's it gonna be, sister? This is the spoiler section for Kill Bill Volume 2. Brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of the Quentin Tarantino rewatch series. If you've not seen the movie yet, that's a good place for you to hit pause on this episode. Go watch that movie. Come back and hit play on us. We'll be here waiting for you when you get back. If you've seen the movie already, if you're just interested to hear our thoughts on it, or if we've hyped up the spoiler section so much for you in the non-spoiler section that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing what happens, this is where you want to be. All spoilers all the time from here on out for Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 2, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar as part of our Tarantino rewatch series. Michael! <gasps> we start the spoiler section every time by going over some classic Tarantino stuff. We call it trademark Tarantino. What do we have? Alright, so for me, I got a few sections of the classic. I'm going to rip off a bunch of dialogue real quick because classic Tarantino dialogue is back with a vengeance. There's a lot of opportunities for it because we have a western. Agreed. We don't have a great fight film. We have a lot of dialogue scenes. That opening narration is phenomenal. I roared and I rampaged. That is Quentin Tarantino dialogue right Also, there. not to cut you off, but I have this as trademark Tarantino. We're starting another movie in the middle of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're starting on the road to go kill Bill. <laughs> and she's already taking care of everyone else just as he starts every movie in the middle of his movies. To let us know that when she gets buried alive in a few minutes, she's going to be alive. <laughs> right. A few weeks later, or whatever that was. So again, it's allowing us to have fun suffering with her. I don't know, but bottom line is we know she's going to be okay because she's going to kill Bill. She says in that monologue mm -hmm. she's killed everybody else already. Same structure as the previous absolutely. movie. This is absolutely right because in the last movie, we knew that Oren was already dead. Yeah, we had less exposition to figure out this time, aside from what the hell happened to the pussy wagon, <laughs> and why is she in this old rickety car, and is that a Tropic or a, a, a Miami-like background she's driving through? That's it. Exactly. So the scene where she gets buried alive by Bud, his kind of tell-off scene, it's not a tell-off scene, but it's him explaining to her the threat, right, that he mm -hmm. with the can of mace. Sure. That is vintage Tarantino in a way that almost it harkens back to Reservoir Dogs when he's talking about what he's going to do to the cop. Essentially, it's just kind of the same kind of scene. I could not agree more. I also put down that it's un-Tarantino. In that scene, we're watching the protagonist suffer the torture. We're watching the torture be exhibited. We don't really see... In Pulp Fiction, we don't see Marcellus Wallace being tortured until Butch comes in at the end. We see the last glimpse of it. We don't see the cop get ultimately tortured in Reservoir Dogs. We see the after effects Cuts of away. It. Here, we're watching viscerally in the face the bride get tortured. We do. Hard to transition from that, but yeah. I. Uh, when will I see you again? That's my favorite soul song of the 70s. <laughs> I like that as I, well. That's an incredible line. Again, it's just Tarantino having some fun. And then Ellie reading Bud the shit about the Black Mamba, like the specs about the Black Mamba yeah, I love as that. he is writhing on the ground. I, I mean, love that, that is sadistic, but that is <laughs> such a Tarantino touch. He relishes it. He just, she takes her time and she flips open the notebook. Or, yeah. Oh my God. Sitting there smoking a cigarette. Now you're going to want to listen to this part because this pertains to you. Guy's fucking <laughs> flopping on the ground, losing his life. Oh my God. That was beautiful. So that's all classic Tarantino dialogue back for me. You got it. What's your next point? I have what is turning out to be 
trademark Tarantino that wasn't up until volume one, but the hand-to-hand fight scene between Ellie and the bride in the trailer, I mean, the guy can choreograph a hell of a fight scene, apparently. The whole thing was beautiful. There's a through line of Ellie not being able to unsheath her Hanzo sword because the trailer's too not wide enough, and they fight through everything. Apparently, that fight scene was inspired by Jackass 3, I read. He so, was at the theater and watched, or Jackass 2, one of the right. Jackass movies. He wanted to do, Mike, he wanted to do a Godzilla fight scene where they're in the canyon and the two characters become as big as Godzilla and whatever fights Godzilla. And Daryl Hannah was describing this, that this was going to be the scene that Tarantino then changes it last minute. And he basically says, I don't know if he saw Jackass 2 in theaters, and he's like, I can't do this. Again, you know, Tarantino oftentimes takes the things out of the movie that would distract you during the movie. And that would have been totally distracting. Would have been really off note. It would have been very strange. It would have been like a Terry Gilliam thing going on. And he takes a lot of that out because he realizes, all right, that idea might be funny to me on the page, but it, it might get me to the second to the third That would have been wild. Track. Wouldn't that have been wild? Wild. So That's basically, he, he puts him in the trailer as something to, to, to be different from the last movies. The last movies, they're reacting to everything uh, in the set. And yeah. this is the same deal. And I agree that that is perhaps my favorite part of that scene where she gets the oh the can of spit thrown yeah. on her the what is <laughs> yeah. the, the dip the dip, the dip oh, jar, yeah she you know goes into the bathroom she's breaking through the closet the kitchen's yeah they're up. using their surroundings to their advantage I mean they're propelling themselves through door those small doorways that a trailer has they're walking off walls a little bit they're crashing through going room to room kind of searching for each other and trying to get the drop on one of them. it's really really well done and again this is not a man Tarantino who's known for his illustrious battle scenes exactly except in Kill Bill volume one he's cut away now all that being said after the first movie and the battle the fight scenes that we got in that first movie it was there was more fight scenes than there were dialogue scenes in the first movie Mm -hmm. in this movie there are two essentially the Pai Mei fight which is kind of like a training session. Yep. And then there's this fight here. There's no more fight scenes because what does he do? He built you up thinking that you're all you're going to get the is misdirect. fight scenes for a second yep. movie. And now instead of doing that, you got a 40-minute dialogue scene, which is to his words. And I just think that overall reversal of just absolutely inverting your expectations yep. is perhaps the thing that he loves to do most that he's done in previous films. Very like, him. Pulp, that Pulp Fiction totally does this. Reservoir Dogs totally does this. You hawked a Hattori Hanzo sword. It's priceless. That is... We know it's priceless <laughs> after the first movie. We know. We know what lengths she has to go to get that. I think I'm actually quoting Tarantino by accident right now. <laughs> In my own analysis, because I've listened to so many interviews. I think he said that before. Everybody's nodding. So that is a great fight between Ellie and B. But right at the point where they're sword, ready to go, sword, yeah, it's ready to kick up to another notch. Nope, eyeball, take plug. your eye out, and and he does that. He does that in the bill scene as yeah. well. You think you're finally gonna get this big sword battle that just that lasts for thirty seconds, and then we do the five open palm, five finger death punch. It's it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, you get set up for this is gonna be a huge scene, yep. and then nope, dialogue. It's talking about Superman and Clark Kent. He's you get this whole thing, obviously with the kid. We're gonna get to that, but. You are set up for a big fight scene. You don't get it. Even the fact that Esteban, at the beginning of that scene, Mike, he is said in the voiceover narration to be at the head of the basically occupying force of that city. That city is 
run by the sons of all his horse. Mm-hmm. And he is, you think it's another crazy 88. Yeah. At least that's something. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a gun battle versus all these guys. And no, he just like. It's just a conversation. I'll tell you where to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a conversation. I and absolutely agree. There's nobody you. that circumvents expectation in the way Tarantino does. And it's so, even even the subversion is backwards because if you were to subvert expectation, you think you're going to like cause action out of nowhere, right? He mm-hmm. does the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. He slows everything down when you're expecting, you're at the height of your expectation for some huge kick-ass action piece. And then he gives you a conversation and then has somebody tap a chest five times so their heart explodes. Yeah. I mean, that's how he gets out of it. All right. This, I was going to save this for screenwriting advice, but he has a quote on just doing this very thing. Cool. He says, what I do is play the audience. I think about the audience's reaction. When someone does that to me, I've had a good time at the movies. Yeah. He's, I mean, he, he, that's another thing he does over and over. He puts himself... Again, it takes a little bit of an egomaniac to do this, to think they're capable of doing this, but he puts himself in the audience's shoes. We've talked about in other episodes how he put himself in the character's shoes for making decisions and writing the script. I don't write the script. I let the characters speak through me. Yes, it's insanity, but he does it, and he does it better than anyone, maybe. Maybe. I I mean, it's, it's spectacular. I just want to talk about that finale again, because you think you're going into a major showdown. Mm -hmm. You're finally going to get that fight in the moonlight. Right, you're finally gonna get that. Bill lays it all out. Bill's like, "Yeah, we'll we'll cross swords in the morning. We have I'm beautiful sand here. We can have moonlight on the beach. We can have a sword fight, or we can do this old school. We can wait for the sun to rise." And you're thinking, "Yes, yeah, yeah everything, right. yes to everything." Especially on the heels of just seeing Volume One, when we see the beautiful artistic shots of that Crazy 88s fight. Right, uh, we have the silhouettes fighting each other with the blue background. It's like a music video almost. We're like, "Oh man, what's he got? In st- what's Picasso gonna do next? What's the next painting?" Even when she's storming the castle, so to speak, she storms the castle. I forgot that BB was still alive. And then, Mike, we have BB with the toy gun and Bill with the toy gun. We're thinking we're going to go fight mm-hmm. the most evil man yet. How many it, layers of protection is he going to have how there? How many guards yep. is she going to have to kill? No, it's just <laughs> it's ba- dad her and her baby's daddy. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? And I just love that scene and sequence really so much. I think it's totally classic, and it's also un-Tarantino. I'll skip it. I'll save that for the un-Tarantino. But the truth serum is totally Tarantino. Oh, by the way, here's his truth serum. (laughs) Because I here's and I'll go on a two-minute ramble explaining why I need the truth serum. (laughs) And then the whole Superman thing. I'll get into that in a minute. But the the fact that he explains what he did, and then he goes. And I overreacted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she pauses, and then she leans in. That was you my favorite. Overreacted. Part. My favorite part. And then of course, after he dies, he's like, "You're not a bad person. You're a terrific person. You're my favorite person." That, those his last words. Oh my god. Those aren't his them. last words. Right. <laughs> and so, he has one more line. All right, Mike, some sneaky classic stuff. So some underrated stuff. So this is where I think the, the cinematography, what I talked about in the non-spoiler section, I think, it, and the editing specifically comes into play because these aren't standard in the in the very beginning when we have the bride meeting Bill at the chapel. These aren't yep. like your standard Tarantino shots. We have a lot of 
cutting back and forth between the bride's face and Bill's face, the bride's foot, Bill's foot, one step towards the other one, one step towards the other one. And it's not, he does this twice, I think, in this movie. And Hmm. the latter time he does it, it plays with the beats of the song that's going on in the background until it doesn't. And this isn't really, like, he's not known for, as much as he's known for shooting things that look like music videos, Right. this is almost exactly a music video, and he's not really known for that type of editing and that type of shooting. Sally Menke lost her too early, but she she's awesome in here again, as, as you say. And I, I didn't notice it, I didn't write it down, like I said, but now that you're saying it, I'm remembering it, and I love all that stuff. He's done that before, so this is why this is sneaky classic, in the sense that if somebody's... And Jackie Brown is going up to the door. Mm-hmm. You're gonna get that close up of the doorknob first. True. Then yeah. You're gonna get the hand. Then you're gonna, you know, and then you're back wide again. Good point. And he did it in the last movie too. But you're you're gonna get like what detail does he want you to know? The yeah. Boot. He wants you to know the boot. He wants you to know the spur. <laughs> whatever. Whatever he wants you to see and focus your eye on. He will do that. He will cut away. Yeah. It, it, again, I, I just couldn't help but notice. And and it is. It's kind of unlike what he does. But if you think about it, he does do something like that a lot. Cinematography. I would have the same thing. That shot when Bill when Uma's describing the last mission Bill sent her on, yeah. and she encounters that assassin who had the shotgun, and the shot of the assassin leaving after she's going to leave the bride alone. She walks through the door. We wait until the hotel room door flies back closed, and mm-hmm. she's centered within the sur- shotgun blast circle. Incredible that she, shot. I, I, are you fucking kidding me? How long <laughs> that must have taken to line up, not only the camera, but where that actress has to stand? That's amazing. And that's I, this guy is a master of cinematography. He doesn't get enough credit, in my opinion. I agree, and that's a perfect transition for my number one sneaky classic thing. And it really should be just classic, Mike, because you just mentioned the standoff in the anecdote from the bride's story. We think we're going into what? How many movies now do we get a gun on this person, a gun on mm-hmm. that person? Oh, yeah. You have a Mexican standoff ending each and every single one of these movies. At one point or another. We even talked about it with Kill Bill. There's stuff. The Kill Bill Volume 1. In this movie... You think you're walking... She's got a gun out. Yeah. So you think, what's going to happen? Of course this is going to happen. You get the fake standoff. Yeah. With the toy guns. And then, of course, she tells a story about a real standoff. Yeah. With real guns. It, it, it is. I, I, you know what? I didn't even think of that. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. It's a great point. What a lunatic this guy is. And he's a crazy lunatic. He's nuts. He's, he's nuts. And I don't... The, the nutsiest because that's a word, thing about it is that he pulls it off every time. Nothing he tries that's new fails spectacularly, like it should, for any other director or movie maker. I mean, that's a perfect point. She walks into a Mexican standoff with her daughter she didn't know was still alive, who shoots her, and that's actually what I refer to in the non-spoiler section, her face in that moment, Mm -hmm. when she's deciding, am I here to kill Bill? Or am I here to reconcile with my daughter who I thought was taken from me? Yeah. So she's crying and making that decision as the camera zoomed in on her. She's crying. We're crying. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm blown away in that scene. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Just nuts. Um, My second underrated thing, sneaky classic, I guess you'd say, is that he did this for Oren Ishii. He gave her a lot of exposition to make us like Oren. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole anime thing, you feel... Like she was traumatized as a child because she watches her parents. Well-rounded character. Bud getting chewed out so spectacularly by the head of that strip club. That fucking hat. 
How many times did I tell you to leave that shit kicker hat at home? Did that whole strip club sequence remind you of another movie? Because it's vividly bringing something to mind uh, for me. But we no, reviewed another movie we really? reviewed. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. In the back of that strip club that Michael Myers goes to, I felt like it was the exact same fucking set. Yeah. I mean, I felt that with the dirty, grimy owner that's gross and abusing his relationship with his with his workers, right. his, his strippers, I felt like it was the exact same back room. I was having, like, deja vu flashbacks. I thought it was the exact same set. You're rooting for Bud in, throughout oh, that whole scene. Oh, without question. Throughout that. And why? Why? We're going to... We're going to root for a guy mm-hmm. who's about to give a monologue about burying someone else alive. We're going to root for him. We know she's about to storm his trailer and attack him. And then like films, Mike. Mike, she stood, <laughs> She kicks open the door. We think we're in for an epic fight. Bang! <laughs> you got a shotgun blast. Are you kidding me? The, the first time I saw that, I flipped. I, st- <laughs> I stood up. I remember. Now I remember. And I was in New York. <laughs> I stood up. <laughs> I was. No, I remember where the hell I was. Wow. I literally stood up. <laughs> That's amazing. And you're right. And the same thing happens when Ellie leaves Bud's trailer. We see the two dirty feet come flying at her because mm-hmm. she's not getting away because that's the bride reintroduction. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This makes no sense. This really doesn't feel like a movie. It just feels like we're like being told a real life story. We know these people. They're friends of ours or acquaintances. We know every person has their good and bad side. Even with Ellie, Driver, we watch how much uh, the bride suffers, or Beatrix suffers, under the tutelage of Pyme. So then when Ellie is getting her eye plucked out in that quick anecdote, mm-hmm. which is something new, we'll go on Tarantino, we'll go over there. When she gets her eye plucked out, you're feeling for Ellie in that scene. And then when Ellie kills Pyme... And you get that flash. I killed you, master. Oh my god! Yeah, that was heavy. Hey, that's heavy, but that's also like, yeah, goddamn right, you did, Ellie. <laughs> Good job. Pyme's a piece of shit. Let's go. Good. And you feel for her, and then she loses her other eye, and when that gets squished, you feel bad for Ellie. She's writhing in another fantastic Daryl Hannah movie, yeah. movie death. Yeah. After she's done this, writhing another movie death in, in another big movie. All right, it's Blade Runner. I spoiled it. <laughs> oh, my God. No, you're absolutely, you, you hit on great points. I totally agree. Do you have anything for Untarantino? I kind of already gave mine. Okay, number one, guns. <laughs> There's no guns in Kill Bill Volume That's 1. Good point. Uh, this is not really un-Tarantino. I kind of put this in there last second while you're doing the intro to the whole spoiler section, Mike. Because this is a forgotten worst from Kill Bill Volume 1. That whole 1 versus 100 fight, what if one of the mm-hmm. 100 had a machine gun? Well, We don't have a, a Volume 2. No, probably not. Why did one of those people have a machine gun? Uh, they fought with honor? I don't I know. Yes, they did. How did we not <laughs> Probably a good, object? Yeah. Short, shortcoming on our part there. Is that a few points off of Kill Bill Volume 1? Now that we, I don't know, but... <laughs> that would have been an interesting... I mean, talking about circum, circumvention of expectation. But that certainly would have played with it. We are back to guns in this movie, and there's great Western moments like we've been talking about. You mentioned a bunch already. This is not something Tarantino's known for at all. Western moments. No. I mean, the showdowns in the last movie were like entrance music. Now you have this imperative, this Avenger kind of deal where that's totally Western. Yeah. You know, you have the man versus the machine. You have the, you have all the all these big art overarching themes. You have, uh, you have my daughter. I have to save my daughter. Oh my! And she didn't even know she had a daughter. Right. But you have him playing his flute. You have the incredible moment where he goes, "Hello, kiddo." 
And she's like, how do you find me? He goes, I'm the man. Are you kidding me? That is the coolest fucking exchange I've ever seen. Just incredible opening scene in black and white. I love the opening scene. If we're going to talk about worse or issues or however you want to... Con- Again, the opening dialogue that Carradine's bill is given, she's explaining why she's going to marry this doofus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's a doofus. He's a doofus. <laughs> she's explaining why, and and he cuts her off at one point. She's like, it's going to be easier. I work in the record store, and you know, it's more acceptable to, to grow raising my daughter in then. And he cuts her off and goes, as opposed to jetting around the world, killing humans, and being paid vast sums of money. And then he immediately <laughs> follows that that up by when she calls that says her bride side's gonna be lonely at the wedding he's like your side always was a little lonely (laughs) shut up (laughs) if you're like you know bottling up your murderous <laughs> rampage tendencies you're probably going to spit out some on the no style all right, all right. I, so you didn't like you didn't love the rest of that scene i just thought it was beautiful to look you're at. absolutely right. i love the setup when yeah. he's like i'm the man yeah. oh my god all right so serious horror in act one mike for untarantino like he hasn't gone this early with the serious horror yet like we have her getting buried alive and all right early act two excuse me we don't we have late act two for the whole thing in pulp fiction Early act two, the cruel tutelage of Pai Mei follows up the coffin. Holy shit. Yeah, bang, bang. And as opposed to in Kill Bill Volume 1, because the Pai Mei story in this movie is the Oren Ishii backstory in Volume 1. They're yeah. both tangents in the middle you know of what? scenes. That's kind of horrifying, too, I guess. Maybe I'm wrong about that, because that's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just different uh different That's true. Backstories. No, yeah, yeah, you're... So, that's, so that's you're right that I'm wrong. You're, yeah, here. you're right that I'm right there without <laughs> making a point. But no, it, it's they're they're there to they're just kind of placeholders in the yeah. middle of these very serious situations. Getting buried alive is like something that most people have as one of their greatest phobias. Terrifying. The Texas fu- funeral yeah. is a terrifying enterprise. Now, when he does that, now I'm going to consider this a worse worse scene. I'll skip ahead for half a minute here. When he does that, mm-hmm. he immediately gives us the backstory on what will get her out. And we, yes. we, I think he does this as like Pixar does sometimes, Disney Animation Studios does sometimes, to tell, to give us hope because she is crying in a in a coffin yeah, only with a deadly flashlight. murderous assassin is kind of up against it here. <laughs> what would make her cry? What how, being buried alive? Yeah. Of course it would. It would make us cry. So we are at our most hopeless. Then once she starts flicking the piece of yeah. wood from a half, you know, an inch and a half away, all right, now we know she's yeah. gonna get out. But that is such bullshit. It is convenient. It? It's, it's convenient. awfully convenient, especially with the placement of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I got two more things here for Untarantino. Sure. You got anything else though? Uh, no. Again, just the close up during the torture scene was the biggest one for me. How we actually see the suffering this protagonist done. Not only when Bud has the can of mace yeah. held up to her eye and she's freaking out, but in the coffin itself, which he's got the flashlight to her, and she is crying like you just hit on. Uh, it was very horrifying. Like you said, horror was a big theme through, through there. That's really not, hasn't come into play that much, but maybe it has like we just talked about with O'Reilly. He has not had a singular protagonist yet, even though he's made, like, if you consider Tim Roth and Reservoir Dogs, obviously he's suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're right in this, to say that Ving Rhames is not a protagonist and... No fiction who suffers, but no. All right, we have anecdotal humor in this one, Mike. A Family Guy like anecdote to prove that she is in fact Beatrix Kiddo. Is this the most random cut scene in movie history? 
like I almost wonder if he thought about it a little more. <laughs> like he it was it would have gotten cut on the cutting room floor just like the Godzilla fight did. Yeah. This makes no sense. The first time we hear Beatrix Kiddo's name said on film is Ellie revealing it, and then we go to a quick cutscene of a bell ringing in a classroom. There's a first grade teacher reading attendance. The first two or three kids say here, and then we get to Beatrix Kiddo, and we zoom in on Uma Thurman. Here, and that's it. With goofy little pigtails <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. Wow. What the fuck? <laughs> it was weird. Alright, that's her name. That was, that was very bizarre. Uh, that's very un-Tarantino. Yeah. Yes, uh, that's a good point. Now, here's something that I didn't know where to put it. I didn't know if it was classic, sneaky classic, or un-Tarantino. But the long, circuitous stories that finally come to a point, yeah. he makes, he features them in the finale of this film. Like, you have Bill talking about Clark Kent and Superman, which is a great story. I'm, yeah. In the suspense of that scene, I'm like, what the hell were we dealing what with here? Talking First about? Yeah. time we wa- I watched this. Now I love it. I, I relish it because it builds up to the point where, no, you're Superman. Yeah. Beatrix I, Kiddo. I didn't, I didn't remember that at all. It was right. a treat to hear it again for the first time in years. And then he, he over the sandwich making, which looked like a very average sandwich, let me just say. It didn't look like a great sandwich. <laughs> I but love the sandwich making scene. He's making a sandwich with the little girl, which breaks my heart, by the way, because mm-hmm. he's making his little girl the last meal, even though I shouldn't feel bad for the murdering bastard. Well, he's he making is. it with a gigantic knife in case Beatrix tries anything. Yes. Now you have... How do you spread mayo with that knife? The whole story about the goldfish. Yes. Again, getting back to who we really are. Mm-hmm. We're, we're murderers. I'm trying to get a last chance plea for my life. Showing your perspective, yeah. Learning what death is. Again, oh my god. Coming to a point like the scene after. He's a master chess player too. Uh, Yeah, I think that's all intentional. I think that goes right in line with Bill's character to do that, to have these long dialogues that go nowhere seemingly and then kind of come into play immediately. Jules will do this in Pulp Fiction. You'll have a few characters do this, like Tim Roth in Reservoir Dogs. And then you'll, obviously, you'll have Christoph Waltz do this later on. So this is something that I didn't know. It's like, it's very strange. Samuel Jackson It's the first time, yeah. Yeah, It's it's probably the first or second time he's done it yet, Mm -hmm. for sure. But he, it definitely becomes a larger part of his filmmaking later on, even with Samuel and, and The Hateful Eight, right. etc. Just keep an eye out for that. The long stories he loves telling those in dialogue scenes going forward. But we got some worse scenes now, Mike. Yeah, I hit on the stuff at the beginning. Look, another real-life thing, and sorry for being overly depressive here, it's really tough to watch in light of recent current events. It's really tough to watch a shooting take place at a church. People yeah. walk into a church, and I just I couldn't help myself but having new flashbacks of the news and current stuff going on in the last couple of years. It Again, it's just an, it's not Tarantino's fault this time, but it's another example of how rewatching this or any movie really over time it's going to take on different meanings just because of life events that are seemingly or are, but not in this case, right? Unrelated. Cosine uh, there. Yeah, uh, I think the it's a small thing. But it's it the anti-Semitic remark. That was the next like, place why, I was going. Like it's There's so, a couple so, of them. It's in there. Like, why do you need that? No, there? I'm with you. Yeah, like, yeah. All right, Bud is an yep. asshole. Yep. Just to say Bud is an asshole, I'm gonna say say that. I don't. I don't. No, I, I mean he did enough job. He certainly did enough. Like, did that add to him being an asshole at all in this movie? No. He, you know he, what type of person he is. I think sticking a fucking mace can to a woman's eye who is tied down because you're in the process of digging out her grave to bury her alive, that probably gets the message that across. Yeah. That qualifies. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate that. And we, we harp on that, and I know there are people that are going to be sick of hearing us bring it up, but 
too fucking bad because it's a big deal. And there's no need for it right now. You don't need to use these words. Why did they need to spit at each other? Why was that necessary? Yeah, apparently they tried using different apparatus to get the effect and it just didn't please Tarantino. Like they squirted water at her out of a water bottle. Yeah, they were trying to figure out how to do the spit without actually using real spit first. At least allegedly, you know, according to Quentin. Uh, But you're right. There's certain things that are done on set that... I think especially at this point where we are in 2019, if you feel any sort of unease about it, it probably, the odds are, it's only going to intensify in nature over time. So why risk it? You know, it's it's a simple thing for Tanta. Like, if he's got to convince her to do this, right. go through with this, he should probably just say, not all right, do come, not do it, come up with a stunt for it, be creative around it. I mean, look, if someone's not immediately like, the character in Inglorious Bastards that we're going to go over, where she was totally, she's like, I'm in. Right. You know, it, yep. make it look like you're really choking me. We'll just make my face red legitimately. And that's fine. I mean, we we simulate stunts by stunt people, men and women, in, in movies. And it's we a, do that. It's a fine idea here. I mean, the, you're having the contrast of her face. She just got blasted with rock salt on her chest, so her face is all dusty and white. And the contrast of the dip spit being a dark brown against the pale white face of her now. Like, the idea of it, I get the artistic vision behind it. Do you need it to be real, actual human spit of another person spitting in another person's face? From Tarantino onto himself. After onto be, after having to convince her to do it? Yeah, that's where the issue is. It, yeah, it just seems unnecessary right. uh, to go to that length. I mean, figure out how to do the stunt with the water bottle. Figure it out. Can you use watercoloring? I don't know. Like, figure it yeah, out. Yeah, it's, I, it could right. be syrup. Right. I don't oh, care. there you go. Yeah. That's probably a genius idea. Throw a little maple syrup on her face. Yeah. What You're if absolutely right. another bodily fluid, Quentin? What would you have done? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. No. Great points. Great points. Ugh. Ugh. God. <laughs> anyway, uh, no one told me about her, the way she laughs. That's the most on-the-nose music in the history of Tarantino. It's a remix. Of, of like an older song brought to the early 2000s. It's so out of place in a Tarantino movie. We have him not touching any new songs, usually relying on oldies and songs from other countries, and it's cool. The da, da, da. It's, he makes it memorable. He makes it part of movie history. And he takes this reworked version of this oldies song to be on the nose because he's got to kill time between her walk from upstairs to downstairs. Ugh. Ugh. I, he must have loved the song. I don't know. I I just, I do not like it. How does the little kid not wake up? (laughs) Bill shoots the gun, blows up a box. I had that thought. Then he shoots the dart gun twice. She screams. Yeah. Uh, Good question. (laughs) But I will say, when we're going back again to the non-spoiler part where we're talking about these kind of desolate settings, the big fight between Bud and the bride was okay because no one was around. So that's why it needed to be desolate to keep that question from coming up, kind of explaining away the objection, like we always talk about. So though it worked in that instance, it certainly does not work with the little baby sleeping upstairs. I love the scene, but right. like BB was probably right. wake up. Unless she's got the, I got, the movie still blasting in there. Or ear earplugs in? Who knows? Maybe she's got earplugs. I got to double back because I skipped over this. Why does the bride not regroup after escaping from being buried alive? Like, yes, she gets a glass of water, but why doesn't she go back to her car, weapon up again? Why does she just immediately go back to the trailer in her weakened state? Like, take a week off and then come back (laughs) and surprise her again. What are you doing? 
Well, the urge to kill was just that I mean, unquenchable. It, it lucked out for her because Ellie was there too, and she got two birds with one stone right. after you know going through it. I mean, it was tough to do, but um, I don't know why. Maybe she just because it made a great visual. It's the only thing I can come up with. Those dirty feet visual. Oh, the really walking, played well. Yeah, yeah. That was a hen. I don't know if I mentioned this, but that was a Peter Fonda or Henry Fonda. Anyway, it was a Fonda from Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, okay. Same, it was the same shot, the huh. bride walking through the desert as the Once Upon a Time in the West. There you go. Anyway, we ready to get into some screenwriting advice here? Yeah, give it to me. All right, I already went over the one rule. He also said, I like making people laugh at things that aren't funny. Because <laughs> now you're a co-conspirator, unquote. You Jesus take... Christ, Quentin. <laughs> so! Could he... you use different language? <sighs> He likes to, I mean, what is this? But he does do this. Yeah. He does I, make the us idea laugh is, yeah, we get F, the idea. effed up things. Right. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so taken aback by the way he ended that thought. Just because, and again, I, I mean, how, I don't know. I hate this. I hate it. Because it, it pervades every instance of this. I couldn't watch that scene in this movie of her driving that car, knowing that the shot was what it was, what it turned out to be. And it just... Again, everything we know about these scenes just pervades itself into watching these old movies. And you can't help it. And that quote does him no favors, in my opinion. The idea that he likes making the audience laugh at things they shouldn't laugh at? Yes, great screenwriting advice. And if you could do it, it's only going to add to your picture. Going what you've been through, maybe don't call them co-conspirators. He does make you relate to the villains. Yes. Very well. And yes. to make you laugh at things that are probably wrong to laugh at right. will make you relate to all the characters. Because you're all to... sharing this, you're all in on the joke, let's say. But, th- I mean, you think about filmmaking and storytelling and how manipulative it can be and how manipulative you have to be to get your audience thinking one thing and the other. It's hard to be ethical at all times. If it's, if you, at least, especially if you take it this way. Yeah. Like, I have to get my audience to react this way. I'm going to fool them, or I'm going to manipulate them to do that. Hmm. <laughs> and yet we allowed the medium. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I already went over my other big thing there earlier, so we're going into Easter eggs. I had two. I know you have something. I, I, I have the diatribe that I promised last episode about the verses, so you go first with your Easter eggs. So... Bill, in that last scene, goes kneecap. And I hear that this very painful place to get shot in, which is echoing of the line from Reservoir Dogs, where Harvey Keitel's like, you get shot in the kneecap, (laughs) you got shot shot in the belly. Whatever whatever that line was, that is a reference from Reservoir Dogs. It's it's coming from the same brain. And then the other Easter egg, apparently I mentioned it already, Mike, Ellie Driver, we leave her writhing around on the floor just like, she was in Blade Runner. I read she did that as an all improvisation thing to try and make Tarantino laugh. She did. And, and he ended he, up using he it. He loved it and he left it in. <laughs> so good for her. Uh, yeah, that was that was funny. I also don't know how how you, you would you react if you already lost one eye and your second one just gets taken out, plucked from you in Mid battle? fight. Yeah. Mid froth. She's frothing <laughs> at the mouth wanting to kill this Knowing there's a black mamba person. snake on the ground somewhere around the you. The most shocking way to get taken out of that fight for her. Yeah. And for the audience, like, of course, that's a great reversal. Great job. Uh, The biggest one, though, is Rufus, right? Is he Jules? Because he he starts out that monologue saying, and I wandered. 
Oh my God! Well, Michael, yes, I'm certainly glad Good you bring that up. That's a great transition. So I mentioned in this section of our review of Volume One of the Realer Than Real Tarantinoverse and the movie Movie Tarantinoverse to summarize quickly the idea that Tarantino's films all took place in a single universe was a long-held urban legend with evidence provided by cinephiles and fans alike for decades, and it was confirmed to be gospel when Tarantino himself finally admitted as much in an Australian television station in 2015 that the Realer Than Real universe, i.e., a universe which is an alternate reality to our universe that plays by the same rules as our own reality and the movie movie universe i.e. movies that exist as movies for characters in the realer than real universe to actually go watch at a movie theater existed okay Caught up? Good. Long since, fans have parsed through Tarantino's filmography, dividing which films, and thus their characters, are part of the realer universe, and which films make up the movie-movie-verse, with the gigantic condition being that characters from one universe were prohibited by their nature of existence from interacting with characters from the other universe. Applied to our own reality, it's the same rule that says also Mike here could not interact with the bride in real life, as the bride is a fictitious character who does not actually exist. So those are the rules of existence. There are two main things that happen in this movie that kind of I would say are the proof that the, those universes are um, really bullshit oh <laughs> I thought you were going to go the opposite way because the five point palm exploding heart technique mm-hmm. that is in Clan of the White Lotus Execution of, of Shaolin these are two Pai Mei films that I was pitching earlier Gordon Liu I think was opposite the Pai Mei character in those films. You have Pai Mei in this movie. Pai Mei dies in those films. Is Pai Mei in this movie allowed to be in this movie because this is in the movie movie universe? Like, Kill Bill is a movie they would watch in Jackie Brown, or Kill Bill was a movie they would watch in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah. If that's in the... So the characters characters from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would go to the movie theaters and watch Kill Bill as a movie. Yes. You just hit on one of the big things. If that is Jules, if Rufus is Jules, and this debate online, Reddit, a bunch of forums that I read, if Rufus does turn out to be Jules, and the evidence is flimsy at best, I will admit, because all we have to relate Rufus to Jules is that Jules said he was going to go wander the coast. So to get to El Paso, Texas, and be in that chapel, he would have had to take a left at New Mexico at the bottom of California to end up there if he was wandering the West Coast. But he is a very religious person, and he doesn't want, he gave up the life of crime, and he needs to go disappear. It's, he winds up in a chapel. Possible. If that is, if Rufus is Jules, these universes can't exist. Correct. Unless Jules was cast as Rufus to be in the Kill Unless movie. Unless Samuel Jackson is cast as Jules, right. Pulp Fiction, and now he's cast as... Which is what's really happening! <laughs> right, which is just reality. <laughs> yes. The second thing that I think, and the most damning piece to me, what culture, the loop, complex, there's a bunch of sites online that have this... In the scene where Bud reports to work, we see at the front of the building, we're behind Bud, he's walking into the front door, there's two cars in the parking lot. Car to the right, don't care about that one. Car to the left is Butch's car from Pulp Fiction. And I'm not saying it's like his model or it's, it's the same type of car. I have all these sources online telling me this is Butch's car, the same car that Butch drove in Pulp Fiction. If that car shows up in Kill Bill, these universes don't exist. Because Butch would be a realer-than-real character driving his car to that titty bar in the Kill Bill movie. Mm-hmm. The caveat, again, could be that that car was purchased as a great prop to show in this Kill Bill movie. So, if in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 
they go to the movies. Yeah. And Kill Bill Volume 2 is up there. <laughs> We're going to be thinking it's something. Tarantino just giving a middle finger to all of us. We're going to be thinking that these universes kind of exist, though, right? Yeah. We're going to agree I would think, yeah. that this is a, a working theory that mm-hmm. actually makes some sense. But, Michael, if in Kill Bill Volume 3 is a way to transition there you to go. that. I like one, it. Good job. If in Kill Bill Volume 3 they go to the movies and they put on Jackie Brown or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, would that just blow the minds of everybody? It's like an Inception type thing. Would that just blow the minds of everybody? Yes. Yes, So they have the universes reversed? Yeah. So From Dusk Till Dawn is the real people (laughs) and Kill Bill is the real people and they go to the movies to watch tame versions of reality? That would be funny. (laughs) What if he did that? All right, so what is he going to do for Kill Bill Volume 3? Speculation, I I have two little nuggets here. In 2009, Tarantino stated that he'd make Kill Bill Volume 3 his ninth film. Didn't happen because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let's see Once Upon a Time first before we say it didn't happen. You You still think it's going to turn into Kill Bill Volume 3. All right, fine. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his ninth film. Yes. Let's say that much. Yes. Uh, In 2016, here's the quote from an independent.uk article. I've been very non-committal about it, and I'm not committing to it now, but I wouldn't be surprised if the bride made one more appearance before the whole thing is said and done. Unquote. So you said 2016. This is 2016. He's apparently talked to Uma about it, and she... I think is someone on board. I don't know. I don't know. It would do him a world of good if she allowed that to happen with him at the helm. But we're hearing from him that he talked yep. to yep. Uma yep. about it. Like, That's true. After this entire nightmare, the waking nightmare for her, 15 years of trying to get yep. this tape, she might th- that that might be the reason why this didn't happen. Could be. Could I, be. We don't know. Could absolutely be. You're, we don't know. You're right. You're absolutely right. We don't know right. what, what their relationship is. All right. So fantasy casting hot minute here, Mike. And I want to ask you what kind of genre you'd want. But I would want Kiki Lane from If Beale Street Could Talk to I think that's be a great pick. Vernita Green's daughter. I think that's a fantastic pick. Do have- I want a great actress to do the action thing. I want to honor Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman's a great actress. She's not an action hero actress. But she they turn, She was turned yeah. into an action hero. Kiki Lane, I don't know what kind well, of athlete she is. I don't is, think but- Vivica Fox is an action hero. And right. she did a full martial arts battle in volume one so i think that would play in well so that's my vote right now i think kiki lane kind of i don't know if she looks like vivek a fox but she's got she's she's athletic she could pull off the drama that would be needed in those scenes she'd be the right age like if they make this right 2024 she was very young making if beale street she's like 20 21 or something yeah I, I like that. I she really do fit. like that pick. She would fit. And you you came to that right away. I mean, you called that. You, you said, I, I want to do mine message. around Kiki Lane. Yeah, no, I think that's genius. I think there's good reason to have that. And I would love to see that. And I think she would work well in a Tarantino movie, too. She could pull off the drama that's needed that wouldn't border on melodrama. All right, so I'm going to forget this ruse. Just throw this ruse on the ground. Because I'm not going to ask you about your dream so I can tell you my dream. Mike, I want this to be a certain genre. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask you about the genre. I want this to be a shoot 'em up I want this to be oh. a John Woo, because you know Tarantino loves John Woo. You know Tarantino loves the Death Wish series. He loves the shoot 'em up genre. Now, it's hard. He's got he's got to walk around some landmines with all the real shootings out there. But can he make a John Wick style shoot 'em up for the third Kill Bill? That's like the third main way to do a revenge story, right? You got action stories in three ways. You got the martial arts. You have the western. Yeah. Now you have the modern-day shoot-em-up. I'll tell you what, in all honesty, 
if, if that came to be, I would absolutely, I mean, Tarantino doing the movie aside, I would absolutely go buy a ticket to see that movie. It makes a lot of sense, especially because we've had so much flirtation with guns, not only throughout Tarantino's filmography, but in the Kill Bill series alone. I like that. All right, so now, do you want a blind Ellie Driver mentoring Kiki Lane? Or do you want, now, now apparently Tarantino's on the record saying that Sophie Fatale raises little Nicky. Which is the would be Kiki Lane's character? Sophie Fatale got her arm chopped off in Kill Bill Volume One. She right. was so right, she right, apparently right, right. so Tarantino has is in his in his head that she raises little Nikki. Now does Ellie factor in because she's blind? Does she get bit by the snake? She's got to factor You're in. You're coming right? very close to an idea I had for mine, which is I haven't figured out who I want as the mentor, but I do think, yes, there needs to be some mentor character in the vein of Pai Mei. Obviously, it can't be Pai Mei. I think Ellie would be a fantastic pick. And do we start with this young girl being an underdog, or do we start with her being a really accomplished assassin already? Little, little Nikki. I don't know, because I wonder if the bride really does have to die. If this is Tarantino, one of his last films, and he has an entire career of just being just criticized for how violent his movies are. Mm-hmm. What if in the final his final act as a filmmaker, he has the character of Nikki walk away from the bride and and stop the cycle be the of violence. Person? Be the bigger person. Wouldn't that be the craziest reversal yet? Because even in the prep, he's like, all right, now we know the bride has to die. Of course the bride has to die. She has to die the same way Bill had to die. You know, she need, you know, Nikki needs to get her revenge the same way the bride needs yeah. to get her revenge. It's just they're just as worthy. So she's but I gotta wait. The violence. Hmm. Could I'll, that I'll, happen? I'll, yeah, I like that. You would need the dramatic chops of Kiki Lane to pull that off. But like I said, and it, when you pitch this in the first place, uh, you could absolutely she could do those scenes. I know my brother's just shaking his head. Like, <laughs> no, the want death. <laughs> I have evil brothers, and they're like, no. Well. I, I had the similar lines. Like I said, I had the uh, the mentor story figured out. I want Jaden Smith as my uh, my young. I want a transgendered antagonist, but protagonist. I want him to be mentored and signed a kind of a horror movie. By it would have to be you pitched Ellie. I wasn't going to say Ellie originally, but I think that makes a lot of sense if she has these horrific visions because she cannot see. So, Jaden Smith was good in. It would be a redemptive story for him and his he, acting career. Right he now. was not great in that Shyamalan movie. That's probably the last time I've seen him. It's I think, it was his, he, I think it was the last thing he did. But yeah, you're absolutely right. He would him. need. He would need. But I think it's easier too for people to pull off horror movies and for lead actors to be in like pseudo horror movies. And in, in mo- we just talked about Annabelle Comes Home. So Those actors want, aren't the cream of the crop. All right. So you want Kill Bill Volume Three to be a horror movie? To at least tiptoe around the genre for sure. Because one, it's something Tarantino hasn't really explored. And I think I'd love to see his, his yeah. access in that. Two, I think it plays well with the mentor character because everything that Pai Mei did was a horror setting, essentially. I mean, he had her in darkness. He was unbelievably rude to her. You, I know Pai Mei's dead, but you need that mentor character to harden the Jaden Smith character in, in my plot here. I was going to go with the straight plot that he finally gets enough to kill the bride. And I was going to have the bride die. You bringing up that Kiki Lane could walk away from the violence spurred in me. What if the whole time Uma knows that this assassin is coming for her mm-hmm. and she's been training Bibi? Well, that's the whole th- other thing to this. Like, you know... The bride and BB, you know, B and BB are going to have a unified front right. in some way. And even if Nikki succeeds, there should be a fourth movie about BB getting her revenge against Nikki. Yeah. And if Nikki has any 
next of kin. There should be a fifth movie about right. them. It's just going to go so you on and on and yeah, on. That's why you want to stop the violence. That's what I was going to think. Maybe it needs you to might be do a that. mutually assured destruction amongst all parties. Maybe they actually have another standoff. They both shoot each other and they both die. Yeah, that's and what he, I mean. Yeah. He finishes his last movie the way he finished his first movie. Just everybody dies. I will say more than anything, I would like one more ride with the bride. Yeah. I would like to see her as a main character on screen one more time. But she wouldn't be... Well, I mean, she'd be... She would, yeah, she wouldn't be the, the, the main character of the movie, but yeah. she would certainly play a big role. She would be a supporting character, let's say. So she's going to have to do a lot to hide, essentially, from Nikki and Sophie and the, the assassination squad. So she's going to basically live a life on the lam with BB. And you could you could touch on a lot of themes with this movie, too. You could t- touch on PTSD as she's trying to live life right and leave her past behind her, but she keeps getting haunted by visions and reliving stuff she did and was forced to do. Yeah, if you make it more serious. But then again, she's kind of like in the end scene with Bill. She's kind of like, I loved every minute of it. You are, yeah. That's a (laughs) horror movie! (laughs) Jeez. Uh, I would absolutely buy a ticket to yours. I think that's a great pitch, and I'd love to see Kiki Lane be working with Tarantino, period. Uh, Just as much as I would love to see Jaden Smith get his acting career and follow in his father's footsteps and kind of get that shipped course correct my god did we go long today guys we want to know your thoughts uh primarily on what you would cast and what your version of kill bill volume three would be that would be awesome to hear we love when you guys always come up with those super creative ideas as well as anything else any comments questions concerns that you have about any of the tarantino rewatch series or anything we do in the mmo empire here you can reach out to us we are mike mike and oscar on facebook mike mike and oscar on instagram mm and oscar on the twitter machine mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we're available everywhere you hear podcasts and Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. Uh, do reach out to us if you have a couple minutes. You appreciate what we do. If we can leave us a five-star review on iTunes, those go a long way too. Michael, at the end of this marathon episode, some words of wisdom. What are we doing next? First of all, you're turning into an auctioneer. Um, you can actually I'm, apply to those jobs now. I'm trying to get it so I can do it all in one sound. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're basically uh, getting there. You're ah! way. <laughs> That's the outro. <laughs> All right, so we have Mike, Mike, and Oscar Weekly coming up. We have Death Proof coming up next week. We have Spider-Man Far From Home and Midsummer. I think we're going to do one for you next week, the other for you late, uh, early the following week. I don't remember what we're what we're doing, but yeah. we're going to do some new move. We're going to do those two new movies, no matter what, over the next two weeks, maybe both next week. In terms of wisdom, it's a question to you again, dear audience. How can I watch the whole bloody affair? Because I want to watch that <laughs> five, four-hour movie. I want to, you know, talk about the experience on an MMOW upcoming. Where can I buy it? Just let me know. Yeah, and if you've seen, or if you've seen it, how do you handle the tonal change, the transition from one movie to the next? Basically, it's like happen. watching two movies at once, right? At this I point, would to, it, would, yeah. it would feel that way, wouldn't it? Would it feel like it's one movie? I don't know. If it would have to be two movies, it would have to be, and then there's not really a reason to watch it all in one sitting over thing because they're so gradually different. I don't know. I have a billion thoughts. Um, it's late. <laughs> Guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch movies with us. We are trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness on our road to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We will see you soon. See ya. Please don't